holy and precious name. Psalm 119, Psalm 119, we'll take a few minutes tonight and we'll look at this next stanza in this great song that we uh, have borrowed the nickname from a uh, Bible scholar who refers to this psalm as the Mount Everest of the Bible. We're in verse 73, or verses 73 through 80, as appreciate Derek reading this passage for us earlier in our scripture reading. And you see that the Hebrew letter is J-O-D, Jod. And each letter, or excuse me, each verse of this stanza in the original language would begin with that Hebrew letter, Jod. And uh, it was, again, an acronym, some alliteration there that doesn't necessarily translate uh, exactly the same uh, in our Bibles in the English language. But nevertheless, that was part of the poetic device that was used as this psalm is organized by the Hebrew uh, letters, letters of the Hebrew alphabet. This great chapter on the Bible, we read through these verses, we'll look at in this stanza this emphasis on the merciful kindness of our God and how his merciful kindness brings us comfort. But we'll begin in verse 73, with thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. We see, first of all, in this stanza, in verse 73, that God is our creator. And because God made me, I should learn his commandments. Now let's think about this for a minute. Let's put on our thinking caps. I know it's Sunday night. We maybe just woke up about half an hour ago. Uh, maybe you're thinking about where you're going to eat your pizza or your popcorn or whatever afterward. Um, but I don't know. Are we having popcorn at the deacons meeting tonight? I don't think we have any popcorn planned. <laughs> but anyway, let, let's think about this for a minute. If, if God created us, which he did, and he designed us, which he did, and he ordered this universe, which he did, then doesn't it just seem logical that we should listen to him and obey him and know how to live in this universe as he designed it and as he created us? We should. And wouldn't it just make sense that God would write down about this design and this order and this plan for the universe and by his inspiration, as we have talked about in our theme for this year, confidence in the word of God, and as we have addressed many times that the Bible is uh, the very words of God, God breathed. So shouldn't it make sense that he would write all this down for us and tell us how to go about living this life in the universe that he created and he created us, so therefore he has every right as creator to tell us how to live in this universe. And to think that he is a holy God, supreme, sovereign, means that he makes no mistakes. He knows what he's doing. He's not flying by the seat of his pants. He's not like in the... Mount Carmel accounts there where Elijah went and 
He had the confrontation with the prophets of Baal, and Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal as they were dancing around in all their pagan worship and trying to get fire to come down from heaven and destroy the altar. And Elijah spoke up and said, why isn't your God listening? Why isn't Baal listening? If he's so powerful, he ought to be able to send down this fire and, and, and burn up this altar. Is he asleep? Is he on vacation somewhere? Has he forgotten about you? And Elijah mocked them in a righteous way, in a proper way. Maybe a, a godly form of sarcasm. We talk about the, the gift of sarcasm, and sometimes it's used not the best way, but uh, there was, it seems, a, a form of some... Uh, righteous or godly sarcasm there from Elijah. And our God doesn't fall asleep. He doesn't slumber or sleep, Psalm 121 reminds us. So we can look to him. We can look to his word and know how to live. And we should be humble and dependable, or excuse me, dependent creatures, created beings who listen to our creator to know how we ought to live this life within his universe. Now, we know sin tainted that. We know that the sin nature gets in the way and our pride and our selfishness, and we battle the flesh each and every day. But it's a reminder here in Psalm 73 that God made me. And so I should learn from him. I should learn his commandments. I should learn how to live this life, the way he ordered it, the way he designed it, and he desires what is best for me that ultimately will bring him glory. So as we look around in our culture, isn't it just everywhere in our world today, the attacks from evolution and the debate between creation and evolution, that is an obvious attack upon the authority of God and the authority of his word which declares clearly in Genesis 1 that God created this universe in six literal 24-hour days and rested on the seventh. And on the sixth day, in Genesis 1 and verse 27, God created man in his image. Male and female created he them. That one verse right there speaks volumes about how this world should be ordered and how we as human beings should follow God's design and God's order. And isn't there an attack right there upon that verse in our world today? There was, we were, uh, I don't know, it was this afternoon, I think, and Josiah was going through something, and he uh, saw some options on gender. And it said male, female, unspecified, other, and I don't know what else it said. Something like that. Isn't that ridiculous? Male and female created he them. That design is declared by God. It was created by God. And so therefore the biological and physical realities are clear and plain and are easily identifiable because God not only created them, male and female, designed and ordered the universe that way, but that design then shows up very clearly in biology, in science. And so we could go to our culture, to our world today, and for them to 
deny obvious biological and scientific realities is a form of the reprobate mind of Romans chapter 1. There's a clear, obvious, natural, biological design by the creator of male and female. And when man denies that, he is literally stepping into an alternative reality that is a reflection of the reprobate mind that is suppressing the knowledge of God. And that is the scariest thing. That when we reject God's design, God's order, God's revelation, we are ultimately suppressing the knowledge of God that God has designed, that God has declared, that God wants us to know so that we will live a life that pleases him. First of all, salvation through Jesus Christ. But so that we will live a life that pleases him that is for our good and ultimately for his glory. We mess everything up with our sin. Everything that man touches, things that, and really, and I understand that there are areas of life that would be considered all moral in the sense that they're neutral, but really, when you think about it, that category is very small, that are truly neutral. I remember being in education, and I was told over and over and over and over again that the truly neutral worldview is the public school curriculum. I was told that regularly, that the only really neutral educational curriculum was the public school curriculum. They were completely in the middle, and they did not go to one side or the other. And we know that that's, and some of you laughed already, we know that that's not true. Everybody comes to really anything with some sort of worldview, presupposition. So when we have a device, and sorry, Heather, I'm pulling out my phone. Sometimes I do, I do things behind her back, and I feel, I feel bad because I, I later on figure out that she doesn't have a clue what I'm doing. Um, but I pull out my phone, and, and is, is a phone neutral? The device, the parts, the function in a sense is is neutral but is it really neutral not is it all moral is this all moral you think about it in a sense it's not really all moral is it you think about it it's it's got a moral value yes it ultimately depends on how we use it but it's not entirely an all moral or neutral device we can look at all kinds of things, and we have to come and approach this universe, everything that God has designed, that God has allowed us then with the resources and the creativity and the way in which God made us. We are incredibly resourceful beings. That's part of God's creation and part of the way God created us in his image. But because of our sin, we mess up just about everything that we put our hands on. Can the internet be a great tool and resource? Yes. But is it not corrupt? Artificial intelligence. We already see some of the ways in which artificial intelligence is proving to be not some innocent, all-moral, neutral device or intelligence. 
Because where does artificial intelligence get its intelligence from? Human beings. So what comes out of artificial intelligence ultimately came from human beings who were made intelligent by being made in the image of God. So therefore, with sin, even artificial intelligence is tainted. We can go on and on with the examples. Are we not different from animals? I certainly hope so, because when I look at our dog and I see some of the dumb things our dog does, I'm, I, I think it's very obvious <laughs> that I know, I know human, being, human beings can do some dumb things, but our dog does some dumb things. It's acting by instinct. It doesn't have a rational mind and a soul. It is a dog that's been designed in a certain way and certain instincts cause it to do certain things. And we can train it with treats and we can punish it when it wets on the floor or whatever. I mean, there's ways in which that dog can be trained, but ultimately it acts by instinct. A dog is a dog is a dog. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Siegfried and Roy years ago in the circus. And he was the, I think he was the guy that played with tigers at the circus. And he had that tiger domesticated for a circus for years. And if I understand it right, that tiger one day turned on him and, and mauled him. I think it may have even killed him, if I remember right, but it, I know it at least injured him severely, if not killed him. And people were wondering, well, this tiger for years, it was a domesticated tiger. It was taught to do all these tricks, but it was still a tiger. It didn't have a moral will. It was a tiger by instinct, and something somewhere somehow caused it to act out of its instinct, and it no longer cared about any relationship that it had with its master, who for had had many years led it and helped it do all these tricks. It didn't care at that point. It reacted in its instinct and killed or at least severely injured its master. We're distinct. We're created in God's image. We talked about this a little bit this morning and the idea of being a servant and the fact that every human being has dignity as a person made in God's image. So we have no right to mistreat other people, to treat them as if they are subhuman. And we can talk about racism and we can talk about all the prejudices and the biases. And it is a high calling when a parent has to raise a child with special needs. It is a high calling when people are called to work with those who are handicapped in some way, who have some sort of physical or mental disability. But each of those individuals is still a person made in the image of God, created and designed by God, and even in that disability, they bring glory to God. And I know in some cases there might be a physical handicap that prevents them from understanding the gospel. In those cases, there's a dispensation of grace where they cannot intellectually understand and receive the gospel. But I have seen, and you have probably seen, people who have serious physical or mental disabilities but can understand the gospel, and they can be saved. And in some cases, they, they have incredible abilities in certain areas, and, and they 
are able to function very well in society and do some incredible things. And it's, again, a testimony to God's design, to God's creation, to the way God made us. We are resourceful people and creative people. God designed even for the human body to live. So as I watched my father pass away from cancer, we were told there were certain things that we could expect because of the way the human body uh, dies. And it was so true what they said as we watched uh, my father pass away. The body fights for life. God made us to live. And ultimately, each individual has to come to that point where they accept or reject Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And we won't go into uh, all the the details and the ramifications uh, of all of that. Um, But every person has to make a choice regarding Jesus Christ, whether to to receive him as one Savior or to reject him. And... That is, again, part of God's redemption plan. Sin entered into the world because of man, because of his rejection of God's law, his disobedience, Adam and Eve. We know in Genesis 2, the accounts. So therefore, each individual, as a sinner, must make a decision regarding Jesus Christ. But we see, again, is in the case of this psalm, in verse 73, Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. So what is the psalmist pointing to again as we have seen this psalm? Each and every verse, except for a couple, makes a reference to the word of God. Using eight, nine, ten words, different scholars will argue about exactly how many, at least eight, probably ten different words that all refer to the word of God. How do then we understand our design and our purpose and why we are here, what we are doing here, where we are going? All those great questions of life that man has grappled with for millennia. And as the revelation of God has been pushed aside, as we have rejected God, man is finding or trying to find all of these answers, but coming up with the wrong answers because they're going to all the wrong places. And the psalmist says what? How does he gain understanding? By learning God's commandments. So as people ask all these questions, why am I here? Where am I going? What am I doing? What's my purpose? God reveals that in his word. In We see people looking in all of the wrong places. We see people drowning themselves in drugs and alcohol and immorality. And there's even percentages of of, of surveys now that people consider themselves very spiritual but not religious. It's interesting as you listen to some of these surveys and this research... Why, why do people declare themselves as spiritual? Because God has put eternity in the heart of man. Ecclesiastes 3. He has a soul. He has a spirit. But where is man searching for his purpose and his meaning in life? He's trying to find it within himself. 
And so we have all of this authentic individualism and expressive individualism, and we have a very selfish, self-centered culture, and we have a group of people out there today that say the answers for all of life are found within. I can name a certain individual, and I don't mean to, in, to, to name her as the only one who thinks this way, but Oprah Winfrey has made famous a form of spiritism where you look within yourself and there is that inner spark of goodness deep down within and if you find that you can then be authentic and then you can discover your true meaning and you can live a happy and prosperous life a lot of people have bought into it but God says you find your purpose your meaning and my will for your life by relationship with Jesus Christ through the word of God. He says, thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. We could go to Psalm 100 and verse 3. We could go to Psalm 139 that speaks also to God's crea creation and God's design of each of us as human beings. I know we'll recognize these individuals. I couldn't find a good picture that really matched this theme for this point, but uh, I thought, well, why not use a picture of some of our people serving together? Our life, our life should attract those who fear God. Look, look at verse 74. They that fear thee will be glad when they see me, because I have hoped in thy word. Look down in verse 79. Let those that fear thee turn unto me, and those that have known thy testimonies what is this saying again what is the psalmist saying as he has feared God obeyed God and served God he is asking that God bring into his life people who fear God love God know God and serve God we talked a bit about this a little bit last week when we talked about companions he that walketh with wise men shall be wise. And we talked about friendships and relationships with uh, those who are unsaved or for relationships with those who are doing uh, wrong, doing evil. And I put this, the, the example up on the, the screen of a man in the book Twice Pardoned and how he got involved with the wrong crowd and ended up in prison. And eventually he got pardoned and then he Obviously, he got saved, and then he was pardoned legally as well. And he wrote a book, and he gave speeches, and was, had a great testimony. So we talked about this before. But again, we have to remember, we should be asking the Lord, ask God to turn to him, those who fear God. Ask God to bring into my life. Those who fear God and know his commandments. We need to be praying this prayer. We need to be praying this for our children and our grandchildren. We need to be praying this for our college students. Even if they're at a Christian campus or not at a Christian campus. But I think of the students at Purdue, Ivy Tech, and other secular campuses where there is so much pressure to do the wrong thing. Lots of pressure from the classroom professor to the peer groups 
There is so much pressure in our world. One of the things we were talking about before church was the testimony of Karen, Karen Baylor, and how she had such a testimony there at the hospital in Bloomington. And just talking about how we as believers, just living a godly life, a righteous life, having a clean mouth and having a desire for the Lord and attending church and just having a principled life, how it stands out like a sore thumb in the right way, but a bright light in a very dark room. We are making an incredible impact wherever we are at, wherever God puts us. But what are we doing with our testimony? How is our testimony? How bright is our light? What kind of an impact are we making for the Lord in the places where we work, in the places where we study, in the places where we have recreation? Online. What is our online testimony? What is our online presence? I've encouraged young people, don't just have Instagram accounts and social media accounts of all these celebrities and superstars and musicians. Have accounts, social media accounts of godly people, of good people, of righteous people who will speak truth into your life, whose lives will be examples of godliness and of righteousness. Instead, we have hundreds of social media accounts for all these superstars and celebrities who blaspheme our God's name, who blaspheme our Savior, if not in their music and in their, their entertainment, their, 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 their acting, but they'll, they'll do it in their personal life. If they don't do it on screen or on the platform, they do it in their personal life. And yet we have dozens of their accounts, and we follow all of their lifestyle. And I encourage young people, I've done it for years, put people on the Internet into your accounts, into your social media if you have it at all, but people that are going to be a good example. But then don't depend on your digital influences and influencers. Get people in your life who love the Lord. Pray for God to bring those people into your life so that we can say like the psalmist in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Lord, bring into my life. And as we desire to love God and to know God and to serve God and to obey God, and as we pray those, that, that prayer to ask God to bring people into our life who love God and will encourage us in our walk with the Lord, it's amazing how God brings people into our lives. It's incredible in his providence how he puts people into our lives who speak godly counsel and speak God's truth and Many of them become good friends who we look to and we get godly counsel from. One of the blessings of being down uh, on campus this past week, uh, we were able to spend some time with some good friends. Had breakfast Saturday morning with uh, another couple that we served with in Terre Haute, and they're still serving the Lord out in a little town in Utah. What an encouragement to sit across the breakfast table and to share ministry experiences and and to, to just have iron sharpening iron and friends uh, sharing with other friends and encouraging each other in the ministry and in our relationship with the Lord. What, what a blessing to have those kinds of friendships. Another friend that, that um, I know I, I feel bad because Kelly, uh, she has to sometimes endure a three-hour phone call that I have with this, this friend who lives down in the D.C. area. And 
what a blessing to be able to spend a few minutes with, with him and, and his wife. And uh, we were able to, to just share some things and what the Lord's doing. And just what, what a blessing. We need those kinds of relationships in our life, don't we? We need people in our lives who will encourage us in our walk with God who will speak to our life the truth and will encourage us to keep our eyes on the Lord. It is a blessing to me when I hear people say they've texted my daughter or texted my son or wrote them a letter or spoke to them and said, keep your eyes on the Lord. Stay faithful to the Lord. Stay in church. Love God. Stay in the Bible. We as parents have been trying to say that for 18 plus years, right? But when somebody else comes alongside and encourages them to keep their eyes on the Lord, I'm saying keep speaking that truth in their life. Keep being involved in their life. They need that. They need those guardrails. They need those boundaries. I don't want them falling off the cliff. I want them staying in the lane where God has put them, that they might keep their eyes on the Lord and be faithful to him. Can I say another word about church? What a great place to have those godly friends and those mentors and those examples that speak to our life is right in church. I heard a Orthodox Jew on a podcast the other day. He said the cure for the loneliness epidemic in America is church. He's an unsaved Orthodox Jew who doesn't even claim Jesus, who thinks that Jesus might have maybe have been a good man, if that, He's a very conservative person. I enjoy his podcast. But he is saying what even genuine believers sometimes are missing. He's saying the cure for the loneliness epidemic in our culture is church. Now, he also referred to synagogue and whatever. But I was, if I can say amen to an Orthodox Jew, I don't mean that disrespectfully or irreverently, but I was listening to that podcast and I was, I was driving down the road and I was saying, church, church, yes, that's where the cure is for, for loneliness, the, the, the Christian community that we have in church and people speaking to our lives and pointing us to the Lord. And then don't we need comfort? We have been reminded of this just recently uh, and how much we need God's comfort. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 verses that we often write on sympathy cards grace be to you and peace from god our father and from the lord jesus christ blessed be god even the father of our lord jesus christ the father of mercies and the god of all comfort who comforteth us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble we see here the psalmist says they that fear thee will be glad when they see me, because I have hoped in thy word. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. He then goes on to say in verse 76, Let, I pray thee, thy merciful kindness be for my comfort according to thy word unto thy servants. What is merciful kindness? It is mercy to forgive sin and to have sympathy and compassion for our fellow man. Forgiveness of sin by turning to the Lord and pleading for his mercy, but then turning and sharing that mercy in our relationship with others, and having sympathy, and having empathy, and having compassion, and brotherly kindness, and love, being able to take the mercy that we have experienced, having been forgiven of our sin, and then sharing that mercy in a 
horizontal relationship. The vertical relationship of mercy results then in a horizontal relationship of mercy. And it's a merciful kindness that is not just mercy to forgive sin and have sympathy and compassion, but then a kindness to sustain us through consequences and sorrow, to share one another's burdens, to bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ, but also think about the merciful kindness of our Lord. As we receive that vertically, we then share that horizontally, but think about the merciful kindness of the Lord during our afflictions. Again, what can the afflictions be? The afflictions can be possibly consequences of sin. It can be a trial or a tribulation, a time of sorrow and sadness. It can be an opponent or an obstacle. But notice what the Lord does. Listen to the promises of God from Psalm 147 and verse 3. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. Does not our God do that for us? As a child of God, have we not experienced the binding of our wounds, the healing of our broken heart? How many times have we picked up a child or a grandchild or maybe a little one in a place that we have been serving, working with little ones, and they fall and they have a little boo-boo? Or they're wailing because they fell, they hurt. And maybe you've had the experience of having a mom or a dad pick you up. I remember when we were in California. I was probably three or four years old. We were living in California. And my dad always set me up on the front of the bike. And my little legs were hanging over the front of that bike. And one night, my dad's riding down the sidewalk or down the, down the side of the street in that little town in California. My legs got caught in the spokes of the front wheel of that bike. And we went down into that grass, and I wailed like a banshee. I was boohooing and crying. My dad was trying to get my little feet out of there. My mom came out of the house, and uh, she was like, Joe, what are you? What were you doing? <laughs> as soon as she, <laughs> you know how it is. At first, our, our, our wives are, are like, what were you doing? But then it's immediately, he's hurt, and she's down there, and she's trying to pick me up and help and consoling me and getting me in the house and getting the, the bandages on and, and all that. And that's what our God does. He binds us up. He takes care of us, and he loves us through the difficulties, the trials. Isaiah 57 and verse 15, For thus saith the high and holy one that inhabiteth, inhabiteth in eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Ezekiel 34, I know it's a reference to a future time when Israel will be restored, but listen to the principles that speak to the attributes of our God and his desire to bind us up, to heal our wounds, to restore us. I will seek that which was lost and bring again that which was driven away and will bind up that which was broken and will strengthen that which was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with judgment. Is that not the heart of our God? David sustained himself as Shimei was hurling down curses as David was leaving Jerusalem during a rebellion. I believe it was Absalom who was leading the rebellion, and Shimei was standing up atop the hill, and he was hurling curses upon David. And David said, The Lord will look on my affliction and do me good for this evil. He could trust God and not return evil for evil. Think about how our Savior comforts us and how he comforted his 
comforted his disciples and he spoke of our mourning being turned into joy. Think about Job who his end was better than his first and the Lord rendered more to his children at the last than he did at the first and how God restored Job and gave him above and beyond and then there were children already in heaven and then he gave him more later and so to Together, they had a tremendous reunion when Job went to glory. And think about that reunion that they had. And we think of our Savior and his restoration and his bringing comfort and binding up our wounds and healing the brokenhearted. So we can claim, we can trust God's promises. Let I pray thee thy merciful kindness be for my comfort according to thy word and to thy servant. He speaks of our humility that we need as we place ourselves under God in his ownership as our master, as we are the servants. We see there in verse 77 the need for God's mercy. Let thy tender mercies come unto me that I may live, for thy law is my delight. We see the emphasis on the mercy of God. And then at the end of verse 77 again, that I may live, for thy law is my delight. We spent time last week talking about our delight being in the Lord. And the promises of God bringing a refreshment to our souls. And as we delight in God's word, he brings joy, he brings peace, he brings satisfaction into our lives. And then finally, we see here that there is no shame in obeying God's commandments. Verse 78, let the proud be ashamed, for they dealt perversely with me without a cause. But I will meditate in thy precepts. Let those that fear thee turn unto me, and those that have known thy testimonies, let my heart be sound in thy statutes, that I be not ashamed. Interesting phrase, sound in thy statutes. Let my heart be sound in thy statutes. What is he saying? Four things, really quickly. We identified the soundness of heart as a heart that is right with God. That's how we identify that soundness of heart, right with God. But four areas in which our heart needs to be right with God. First of all, we need to have a heart that is enlightened in our understanding, in the understanding of God's word, in his understanding. An enlightened understanding by the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. That is how we have a right heart. By being enlightened by God through his word in our relationship with Jesus Christ. So that we have a right perspective of our circumstances. We have a right perspective of life. We have a right perspective of biblical worldview. We are seeing life the way we should see it. Because our heart is right. We're not having a bitter heart. We're not having an angry heart. We're not upset with God. We're saying, God, enlighten my understanding that I can live this life in such a way that I please you, that I honor you. This soundness of our, or being sound in thy statutes, this right heart also involves an awakened conscience. A conscience that is pricked by sin, evil. When we violate God's law, we want our conscience to be pricked to be able to have the, 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 the values. We talked about the shelf last week, the warehouse with the shelves and having the, 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 the character traits and having those principles, commands, and promises of God's word and our conscience being able to point to that and saying, okay, you have violated that principle, that command. You've not trusted that promise. You've not had the right perspective. You've committed this sin and our conscience pricks us to do What? to then get right with God, to confess that sin, to get right, to have a short sin account, to, to deal with that, that issue in our life. 
that may in turn result in us having to go to someone and asking for forgiveness or accepting someone's uh, apology. But having an awakened conscience and then this soundness of heart, this right heart or sound and nice statute speaks of a steadfast purpose, having a single-mindedness in our purpose for the Lord and wanting to please him and fulfill his will and not be turned aside by the things of this world and the counsel of this world and all of the things that are out there that are constantly like loud voices speaking to try to turn our hearts away from the Lord. No, we have a steadfastness of purpose. And we are uh, hopefully like Paul saying, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the course. He's run the race. And he is looking forward to being in the presence of his Savior and hearing, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And then this soundness in thy statutes, this right heart, is a heart that is purged from fleshliness. The desires of the heart are in keeping with God's desires. We're not consumed by lust, by selfishness, by fleshly desires, but instead our desires are from the Lord and in tune with the Lord. This then will result in verse 80 not being ashamed. You know why there is so much can I say, say complacency and apathy, I think? One of the reasons, maybe not the sole reason, but one of the reasons there's so much apathy and complacency and shallowness in Christianity is because we don't have a right heart and a soundness in thy statutes, and we're violating all four of these areas. So then that produces a shame so that there's no confidence for the Lord in going forth and doing his work and living for him and being in tune with God's will and hearing of from the Lord in the right way. The, we're, we're quenching the Spirit far too much. We're not being led by the Spirit of God because our heart is not right, and so it brings shame. And what do we read in Romans 1 and verse 16? We're not to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. 2 Timothy 1, verses 7 and 8 speaks to not being ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And then in 2 Timothy 2, in verse 15, we read that a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We have too much shame. Can I say it in the right way? We are ashamed too much in our Christian lives today. We're ashamed of the Lord. We're afraid to evangelize. We're afraid to stand up for what is right. We're afraid that the, the world might say, well, you're one of those Jesus followers. You're one of those Jesus freaks. Oh, you're one of those church people. Oh, you, you're one of those kinds of people. Are you not relevant? Are you not caught up with the times? Don't you know that we have advanced so much farther beyond that? You still follow a 2,000-year-old book? And we're ashamed. And we shrink back. And we have no confidence. And then if our heart is not right, no wonder we're ineffective in our service for the Lord. What a great stanza the psalmist reminds us of there being no shame in obeying God's commands. He reminds us of his merciful kindness. And don't we need comfort? So many families in our church right now, so many people hurting. 
lost loved ones, having seen a loved one go through pain and sickness, and crossing over in the threshold of, of death and entering into the presence of the Lord. We need the comfort of the Lord, and that comes through his merciful kindness. How thankful we are for the comfort that comes through the mercy of our Lord. And then we're reminded in this psalm that our life should attract those who fear God. And going back to the very beginning, reminding us that God is our creator. And we owe our lives to him and to his service. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this psalm and this stanza, Lord, that reminds us of these important principles. Lord, you are our creator. Lord, we have your word. But Lord, we're so weak sometimes. But we're reminded of your mercy and your merciful kindness. Lord, we thank you for your love for us, an everlasting love. We're thankful for your merciful kindness, and we are reminded of that each and every morning. As Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations, it is of the mercy, it is of your mercies that we are not consumed. Great is thy faithfulness. And Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, may we be renewed in our faithfulness to you even this week. May we go out and serve you. Love you. Give us opportunities, Lord, to share the gospel with others and to be a testimony wherever you have us for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name.